invite you to turn with me one more time to the book of Galatians, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 18 today as we finish up the book. And of course, Paul has been uh, exhorting us in some very practical matters uh, exhorting the Galatians and then, by extension, us as well as God's people. It's very practical matters of, of Christian living in chapters 5 and 6. And now as the book draws to a close, he makes his final appeal to the Galatians in which he summarizes his main concerns. And so let's read that together, beginning in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 6. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. There's a reminder in these verses here of just what was at stake. Uh, the issue with the Judaizers, Paul's opponents in Galatia, was not an in-house discussion about some differences amongst Christians. This was not even just a matter of conscience that they might... Uh, disagree upon in the present. Rather, the difference here is between true and false Christianity. You recall as Paul began the book that this is a difference between the gospel and a false gospel that is really no gospel at all. It's not really good news at all. Now, this is what is at stake in this letter and in Galatia. And so we have here in these final words of the letter a final appeal that comes through these warnings about the Judaizers and through a contrast between the Judaizers and their religion, on the one hand, and a contrast with Paul and the true gospel, the true Christian faith, on the other hand. And in these words, we have an implied exhortation to believe and walk in the truth and to reject the error. And so again, we see that it is essential for us to know the difference between true and false Christianity so that we might cling to that which is true. And the reality is there are many who profess faith in Christ who, who simply don't want to make the necessary distinctions that Paul makes here. Uh, that we'd rather just, as long as somebody claims that they believe in Jesus... Uh, they claim to be a Christian. That's good enough. That's all, you know, there's nothing more to say about it. 
But just as in the first century, when Paul wrote Galatians, there are false gospels today. There are false versions of Christianity that are not, in fact, Christianity. And this is not, this should not be, that should not be controversial to say. We find it in Scripture, and things have not drastically changed from that day. There have always been perversions of true Christianity. And so we absolutely must develop, if we don't possess it, develop the stomach for this kind of distinction, for making necessary distinctions between truth, true Christianity, and that which is false. And the kinds of errors that we find in the Judaizers that we see Paul addressing in Galatians, that these people were making, uh, this is not unique to the first century. These are the same kinds of errors that have been made throughout church history and continue to be made today. And so as we work through these verses and this contrast between the Judaizers and between the truth of the gospel, uh, we're going to look first at some marks of false Christianity, and then we're going to look at marks of true Christianity. So we'll have few marks in each category, but that's the basic outline. Marks of false Christianity followed by marks of true Christianity. So let's begin with some common marks of false Christianity. Obviously, there are all kinds of different ways that Christianity can become corrupted and, and we can pervert it and you can be a heresy, you can be a heretic in a number of different ways. Um, but again, we see in the Judaizers common errors that again are not just limited to them. And so The first common mark of false Christianity here is that false Christianity boasts in the externals of religion. False Christianity boasts in the externals of religion. That is, there is an overemphasis and an incorrect understanding of external actions which end up missing the very heart of the matter, the very heart of the gospel. So let's begin in verse 11 here. Paul writes, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So so before we really dive into this false mark, we see here in verse 11, Paul is asserting his genuineness and his concern for the Galatians. Uh, Many take this to mean, as Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing, that he has indeed been writing this entire letter, uh, not just signing off at the end. In, uh, if you remember in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he mentions he's writing this greeting at the end in his own hand. This is the mark of genuineness in all my letters. Um, many take his comment here to be a little different, that he has indeed been writing this whole letter here with his own hand and with large letters. Now that reference to large letters is something that's debated. What does exactly does that mean? Uh, some think that this is because Paul... Um, Paul's eyesight was bad, perhaps because of all of the beatings that he had taken. He couldn't see very well, and he's left writing uh, with large letters. Uh, there is, in, in Galatians 4.13 to 15, reference to the Galatians, their love for him when he was with them. They would have gouged out their eyes if they could have and given them to him. Perhaps, you know, maybe it's possible that's the issue. Others think the large letters just further express Paul's urgency. He's writing this letter, and he's writing it in his own hand, and he's He's writing it urgently and he's writing it large, similar to maybe how we might see uh, something in all caps today. Although we might view that as yelling. That's not what Paul's doing, although it is expressing urgency. Clearly, that comes across throughout the letter. So whatever the precise meaning of the large letters were, Galatians would have understood it. 
They would have known it signaled his genuineness and likely his urgency in all of this to them. And then in verse 12, he mentions again his opponents in Galatia, the enemies of the church. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Again, the Judaizers are those who are demanding circumcision in order to be justified. They would force it upon you. You have to do this in order to be saved, in order to be justified. You can't rest until you are doing this. You have done this and continue to keep some of the externals of the law of Moses. And so for them, it's belief in Christ Jesus, yes, and keeping the law of Moses. These things combine to result in our justification before God. We believe in Christ and we add to that our works of the law, and together these combine to be our justification. And Paul's insight here to these individuals and to their preaching is that they want to make a good showing in the flesh. This is what they're after. This is their motivation. Their concern is not for true righteousness or for the human heart. Their focus, rather, is on the externals of the Mosaic law. And so if you were to follow after these instructors, then your boast is going to be in your external acts of the Mosaic law. Things like circumcision, keeping the feast days, um, keeping other certain days as well, keeping the food laws, these sorts of external things. And this, this statement he makes, uh, those who want to make a good showing in the flesh are the ones forcing you to be circumcised. Uh, he, he says this again, or similarly, in the end of verse 13. He says, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Again, their, their ultimate focus here is, is in that which is external. If you do these things, maybe avoid those other things, that's what counts. That's their main focus, right? Christ, belief in him, faith in him, that's insufficient. You really want to be saved? Here are some things you've got to do. And of course, this external focus is a very common problem, common error in religion, generally, and in various false versions of Christianity. Uh, this is, of course, legalism. This is one of the problems that the Pharisees had. Uh, you remember Jesus' condemnation of the Pharisees in a number of places, but in Matthew he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. Right? These were those who focused on the externals, whitewashed tombs. They gave the appearance of great godliness, but they were still dead inside. Right? They wanted to look the part. They had no problem standing in a public street corner and praying, we saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And as long as people could see them, they were happy to do these things. Wow, look at that person. How serious that man is about, about the things of the Lord. Externals, but internally dead. Again, this is a very common error that people make. I mean, so many people, their perception of Christianity is it's just about the things that you do. It's about externals, doing this, not doing that. There are different ways this error is made. There can be maybe a more, what we might think of as a more liberal bent, where the focus of Christianity becomes our social activity, 
the social gospel we think of. Doctrine is not so important. We set it aside. It's about our social action and social justice, if you will. It can also have a more conservative bent to it. This is maybe what we typically think of when we think of legalism, where we just really want people to act a certain way. We just want people to act right externally. Just clean up the worst of things. Make yourself look acceptable and appear well on the outside. Clean up the most obvious and gross errors. And that's really what we want. We want behavior modification. We want well-behaved people. That's what we're after. And that, of course... You know, conservatives, too, can make that a social, political issue as well, where all the emphasis of Christianity becomes in, in politics. We just want this to serve an end goal of having things a certain way in society, and we can bypass the cross of Christ. Of course, as we have seen, externals still matter. We've been seeing that over the last couple of weeks. I'm not saying externals are of no concern whatsoever to true Christianity. But this error here boasts in externals, making them the main thing. And this is certainly a dreadful error as it bypasses the the human heart. So this is one to be on guard against that we might not fall for this. A second mark of false Christianity False Christianity willingly alters the message in order to avoid persecution. There's a willingness to alter, shift our message, shift the gospel itself, change it, throw something out, add something in, in order to avoid persecution, suffering. So look at verse 12 again. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Why are they doing this? They obviously want to make a good showing in the flesh. What's their driving purpose and motivation here? He says, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They're motivated by a desire not to suffer. He doesn't just say one of the reasons. He says, and only so. He's highlighting this as a main reason why they do what they do. They want to avoid the suffering that will come with preaching the gospel, the true gospel, which is summarized here as the cross of Christ. And when we think about the early church and the persecution that the early church went through, we might go to somebody like Nero, the emperor Nero, and his brutal persecution of Christians. And we might think of some of those pagan Romans and how they treated believers. But initially, there was a very intense persecution that also came from the Jews themselves. That's just a matter of Biblical historical record, in fact, we see this throughout the New Testament. We see it in Acts. We see it as the Christians were forced to flee from Jerusalem under persecution. We also see it in the Apostle Paul when he was out preaching the gospel. He gets it from all sides, to be sure. Uh, But we see in Galatia, for example, in Acts 13 and 14, when he's traveling and proclaiming the gospel, we see the Jews there stirring up opposition against him. And ultimately, they had him stoned there and left for dead. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary, points out that one of the reasons Jewish authorities were persecuting Christians is that from the outside, it appears that Christianity was simply a sect of Judaism. And the Jews wanted to repudiate that belief, really distinguish the two. They also accused Christians, we know, of speaking against Moses, of blaspheming the word of God and Moses. 
for saying that the Sinai covenant had been fulfilled and the new covenant had now begun, for saying exactly what we have seen Paul say throughout Galatians, as we think back to chapter 3 and into chapter 4 of the Sinai covenant being a temporary thing, of it imprisoning the people under sin. These are not the kinds of things that they liked. And so they accused Jesus, they accused his followers of, of speaking against the temple and against Moses. And so men like Paul were viewed as traitors. You remember Paul's own view of this uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts. He also saw these Christians as traitors, worthy of death. And so to preach the gospel, to preach the cross of Christ, as Paul did and as his companions did, you really did risk physical suffering, torment, being put to death for preaching this message. Sproul summarizes what Paul is getting at here. He says, Paul is saying, I know what these people are up to. They want you to follow the ceremonial laws so that there won't be trouble with the Jewish authorities and they will escape the persecution that I have endured for years. The persecution that our Lord himself endured. Embrace the Jewish ceremonial law and you may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. They want to establish the Mosaic Covenant and the ceremonial laws so that they will not be persecuted by the Jews, by the Jewish authorities. This would ease their suffering. And so the the message of the gospel in so doing is compromised. And they are establishing this law as compulsory and necessary in order to be justified. And they are doing this in the name of Christ. They're claiming to be better Christians and better informed than Paul himself as they go around and trouble Christians. This is something likewise we need to be aware of and on guard about. There are many who in the name of Christ will sell out true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to curry favor with the world and avoid suffering. Do you not find it just a tad A tad suspicious, given the cultural climate in which we live, that in many so-called Christian circles, things like homosexuality are to be celebrated by Christians, or are at least downplayed. Well, it's not really, God kind of whispers about that sin, it's not really a major thing. Or that gender is suddenly fluid or whatever. What what could possibly motivate people in this day and age to, to, to deny what is very clearly laid out in Scripture? Could it be that they just don't want to suffer the reproach of Christ? How is it that all of a sudden, gathering together as the church in the last few years has become a matter that's kind of unessential to our being as a church? And how is it all of a sudden that if you say, no, we we do need to meet and gather and we ought to be doing this. This is important to who we are and what we are as a church. All of a sudden, you're the crazy one if you think that way. From otherwise sane voices even. What, What could possibly motivate these things? There's suffering if we stand our ground there. Potentially. And so we find 
There are plenty of people in the name of Christ who will say, oh, you don't have to believe that to be a Christian. You can be a, you know, homosexuality is not a sin. You can be a, a Christian and not repent of homosexuality. And those Christians over there who say otherwise, they're nuts, they're crazy. These are the kinds of people that are going to sell us out. And the world will say, see, you can be a Christian that affirms all these things. There's, here's a whole bunch of them over here. At the same time, let's not move on without recognizing that this is a very real temptation and that we're not above this. If you've never felt temptation to compromise at the thought of suffering or possibly suffering, I, I, I would question if you're being totally honest with yourself. It's a very real temptation. We've likely succumbed to it at times, not said what we should have said or eased up on what we were saying out of pressure, not wanting to suffer. It's a very real thing. It's something for us to war against that we would not alter Scripture in any way, that we would not base our convictions of what this does and doesn't say based on wherever the world is at today. That we would not deny the gospel of Jesus Christ when the truth becomes inconvenient for us or becomes something that we now might suffer for. Now, this doesn't mean that it's always wrong to avoid persecution. This doesn't mean we can't take lawful measures to avoid it or to minimize it. We don't always have to run headlong straight into it. But what it means is we are not to compromise the word of God and the one true gospel in order to avoid suffering. So may God have, have mercy on us in this. And again, if we fear this and we wonder, I, maybe we get unsettled. I don't know what I would do in that situation. Again, we, we, we trust that the Lord will sustain us and help us to endure as those days come, even as we prepare ourselves now by feeding on the word of God and reminding ourselves of where our true treasure lies. The third common mark of false Christianity. False Christianity fails to understand the law of God despite boasting in obedience to it. False Christianity fails to understand the law of God despite boasting in obedience to it. <clears throat> Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul gives a reason here for why it is he's concluding that the Judaizers are mainly out to avoid persecution. It's because they don't actually themselves keep the law. Oh, they claim to be great law abiders. They claim this is their great passion and their great burden, the law of God, the law of God. They teach this and present this as part of the grounds by which they stand before God as a righteous individual. They claim to be all about God's law. And that's, that's why they're emphasizing circumcision. And Paul, throughout Galatians, and here again, he cries foul to this. He knows better. Paul knows the law rightly. 
Their whole position, the Judaizers, their message, their position, that external obedience to the ceremonial law of Moses contributes to one's righteous standing before God. That teaching is clear proof that they don't understand the law despite their boasting in it. So first of all, the moral law of God, which was written on the heart of man at creation, was marred by the fall in man, then summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God reveals to humanity our sinfulness. They reveal the righteousness of God, and it reflects back on us like a mirror, and we see, I don't measure up to this. It reveals our sinfulness. The commands of God are good. But we don't measure up to them. And we can't. They reveal our sinfulness and our fallenness. And secondly, the, the Mosaic Covenant, it was never given as a means by which Israel was to gain salvation through working. And Paul has been declaring these things throughout the book of Galatians. We've been looking at this. That the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary covenant. It was meant to give way at the coming of the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. That covenant further reveals man's sinfulness, as it kept the people of Israel in bondage, Paul says, imprisoned under it, until Christ would come. It further, therefore, shows the necessity and absolute need of being justified by faith alone, not of works. We see that even as Israel failed to obey even those external things of the law, let alone the moral requirements. And so Paul has been making that clear throughout Galatians, that it's evident, it's clear, it's obvious, you read Scripture, it's very evident, no one is justified before God by the law, Paul says, for the righteous shall live by faith. All of mankind. Paul has made clear, Jew, Gentile, like all of mankind, is enslaved to sin. And it is only through faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are freed from that slavery, forgiven and made children of God. The law is not a means, any part of it, not a means for us to attain a righteous standing before God. Rather, it reveals our lostness and points us to Christ in whom we find our righteousness, our justification by believing in him. The Judaizers, they don't actually keep the law. That's not really their main concern. They'll go back to Jerusalem claiming new disciples that they made in Galatia as they go back to Jerusalem while remaining themselves lawbreakers. They don't understand the law, and they use it unlawfully as a means of contrib contributing to our justification. And again, using the law in that way, using it unlawfully, is a very common error in false versions of Christianity. Many do indeed use it as a ladder to be climbed in order to reach salvation at the end, hopefully. It may altogether supplant faith in Christ, 
But more often, I think, it is used to supplement our faith in Christ. Faith gets you started, it gets you into the game, and then obedience to the law completes that salvation. And when you stand on the last day, it'll be through a combination of believing Christ, yes, and then, and then working a certain amount really hard, your best, however they word it. And together, those things are the, are the reason you will stand at the end, the, the, the grounds of your standing. And that's aberrant. That's unbiblical. That's not justification by faith alone at all. This is precisely the issue that was fought over at the time of the Reformation. One of the issues. Is it grace alone through faith alone by which we are justified? Or is it God's grace through faith and a little more? God's law is good. But it is not a means by which we attain a righteous standing with God. And anyone who would say it is or that it contributes in any way hasn't understood what God's law demands in it in perfection. They've not understood the law in its holiness nor in its purpose. Well, so, so much for the false. Let's look at marks of true Christianity. First, true Christianity boasts in the cross of Christ Jesus alone. Whereas the Judaizers are boasting in their external obedience, and especially the circumcision of their recent converts, the flesh of these other people, Paul contrasts that with his own boast, which is also the boast of Christians throughout the ages. He says, but far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of the Christian faith is the wonderful news that Jesus Christ, our Lord, having taken human nature to himself, died on the cross for sinners. He took our sins upon himself and he satisfied God's justice on the cross as God poured out his wrath upon the Son of God in our place. The, the cross, as Paul refers to it to, twice here in these verses, the cross and the crucifixion are often referred to by Paul as shorthand for the gospel, for the good news that he preached. You remember, of course, he told the Corinthians when he was with them that he very self-consciously decided that he would know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. This was at the very heart of the apostolic message, the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an interesting thing to think about when you consider all of the other glorious things that we could say and focus on and preach about the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many wonderful truths. And so we might wonder, why is the cross, why does that become the focus and the summary for Paul? Well, you can have all these wonderful truths about Christ, that Christ is Lord, that he is the sovereign sustainer of all life on earth, holding the universe together by the word of his power. That he is the coming king and he is the judge of all the earth. That he is the eternal son of God. But if there is no cross in that message that benefits a sinner, nothing. That does not help. Certainly not in any eternal sense. Really what that means for the unbeliever is it's bad news. Christ's return is not good news if he's coming back as king and as judge. If you are lost in your sins. 
It exposes us and leaves us undone before him, before such a glorious being, the Son of God, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. We are to answer to him. Those things are not good news in and of themselves. It exposes us, but the cross, the cross of Christ is where this all changes. It is here that the glorious Lord, sustainer of life, came as man and secured pardon for sinners. It is here that he purchased and secured redemption for all who would believe in him. It is at the cross where we see ultimately and most gloriously the love and the mercy and the kindness of God on display. That God out of his own free will and goodness made this way for sinners to be forgiven. Though we deserve his judgment. It is the means the cross is by which we are reconciled to God. And so it is in this that we boast That the Lord, that my Lord died for me and purchased me. And in the context of other Christians, we say it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in which we boast and place our hope. Not in anything that I would ever do now, yesterday, or ever. This is where our boast is. Christ died for sinners. This is our good news for the world. There is mercy. We proclaim God's law to the world. The world needs to know and understand that. Because they need to understand that they're undone before Almighty God. But we don't leave it there. We have good news. Christ has died for sinners. There is salvation in his name. Believe in him. This is what Paul proclaimed. This is what our hope is. This is our hope today and forever, our hope of eternity, our hope of the new heavens and new earth. Christ died for me. That's my boast. That's our hope. So believe that. Let's not move on from that. This is basic, true Christianity. We boast in Christ and his cross where he died for sinners. The second mark of true Christianity True Christianity embraces that the world is no longer the Christian's home. Look at verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When a person is saved by God, there is a fundamental change that occurs. When we were lost sinners, we were right at home in the world, seeking human approval, going along, But now, upon faith in Christ Jesus, having our eyes opened, upon union with Christ in his death, everything is different. Everything has changed. The world is crucified to us and we are crucified to the world. What Paul means is that the Christian is no longer on friendly terms with the world. If you were to say to someone, and I hope you would never seriously say this, but if you were to say you're dead to me, We know what that means. It means we have nothing more to do with each other. 
The relationship is severed. It's as if, it's as if you're dead. And this is what Paul is saying. How, that this is how the Christian is with the worldly system in which we at one time once reveled and played in very gladly and were part of it. And he's also saying it's a mutual exchange. You're crucified to the world and it to us. The world now looks at Christians and says the same thing. You're dead to me now. You're not going to go along? The believer has a new relationship, not only with the Lord, but also with the world, with sin. This doesn't mean that we come out of the world altogether, or that we have no interaction with unbelievers and sinners. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 5.10. We'd have to come out of the world. We can't. So there's still going to be interaction with the world. But it means that we no longer find our home here. We do not throw in our lot with worldliness, with the world. We don't go along with the sinful world's ways. And this changes why it is that Christians are persecuted and sometimes killed. Look, we, we try hard, we want to try hard not to cause unnecessary offense. And we recognize there are times we can cause unnecessary offense to the world. But there's a reason underneath all of that. Remember, our Lord Jesus always had the right tone, always did everything with absolute perfection. And where did it end with him? Because it didn't end, but they took him to the cross. They killed him, the perfect son of God. He rose from the dead. It didn't end there. Just want to clarify that. But if that's what they did to him, and we're not that good... Jesus told us if they hated him, the world did. If the world hated him, they would hate us too. And the Judaizers despised the cross and the implication that faith in the crucified Christ means that we die to the world and therefore may now suffer at the world's hands. And so they compromised the cross in order to avoid that discomfort of suffering with Christ. But we know better. Listen to what Hebrews 13, 13 calls us to. Therefore, let us go to him, Christ, outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. This is not our home. We are crucified to the world and it to us. True Christianity recognizes that until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to consummate his kingdom, we are indeed pilgrims here, strangers and aliens here. Third mark of true Christianity related to this previous point. True Christianity emphasizes the absolute necessity of the new birth. Paul has said that he, along with all, it's true of all Christians, had a a fundamental change occur in our relationship with the world. He's described it with this language of being crucified to the world and it to us. And now in verse 15, he adds, for neither circumcision counts for, for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Sinful man's need is so dire Our sinful condition in our natural state is so bad, we cannot get out of it. We can't clean ourselves up enough. We can't fix it ourselves. 
We can't just make some modifications to some of our behavior and that's going to be a passing grade when I stand before God. Further, we cannot simply add some religious rites, a few external things like circumcision or going to church once in a while or getting wet in baptismal tank. We can't just do a few of these things and think, well, that's going to overcome our problem of sin. It, it doesn't. The problem of human depravity, it reaches to every aspect of a human being, to our minds, our wills, our affections, our actions, everything. This is what total depravity means. It affects every part of us. Our very natures are fallen in Adam. And so what is needed then is to be made new within. Not just slap a few fresh fruits to a dead and rotting tree. We need to be made new. We need new hearts. We need a new birth. This is what we find throughout Scripture that is accomplished in and through the preaching of the gospel by the Lord. Jesus declared to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I remind you, he says that to Nicodemus like it's obvious. <laughs> it's a clear teaching of Scripture. You're the, the teacher in Israel and you don't know this. The need for this to be made new within, to have not just an external circumcision, but a circumcised heart. This is what is needed. This is what counts. It's being a new creation. There will be those who had been physically circumcised in heaven, some and some who were not and have not been. That's not the thing. Again, this speaks of this real change that occurs in the believer when God saves us and calls us out of this world, we die to the world and we are made new with new desires and affections to live unto our God, to walk in a new life. This is precisely what we've been talking about the previous weeks that Paul has been saying in Galatians, especially in chapter 5 and into chapter 6. When we read earlier 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's what a Christian is. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And verse 18 begins, all of this is from God. Legalistic preaching misses this. Just modifying some behavior is not the point. Performing some religious rites, not the point. How else could the thief on the cross have been saved? What counts is the Spirit of God making the sinner a new creation. And this comes not through simply telling people to do better, not through simply telling people about God's expectations of humanity. It comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for sinners. It is this, Paul says in Romans 1, that is the power of God unto salvation. Salvation is not simply a mental decision somebody makes. They just decide one day to sign something or put their hand up or walk an aisle or what, what have you. It is the work of God making a sinner a new creation. A born-again Christian is not some particular type of Christianity or a denomination or worse yet, a voting block or something. A born-again Christian is all there is, the only type of Christian. And true Christianity emphasizes the absolute necessity 
of the new birth. Fourth mark. True Christianity understands the value of spiritual blessings. We're going to move quickly through these last verses. But understands the value of spiritual blessings. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul pronounces a blessing here of peace and mercy. Upon first, he says, all who walk by this rule. All who walk, that's actually in the future tense. And so the New American Standard Bible says, all those who will walk by this rule, which would seem to suggest that Paul is saying, all those who will agree with him and what he is writing here in this letter in Galatia, all those who will go along the churches that will preach this gospel and kick out these Judaizers and refuse them, he pronounces a blessing upon them. And then he also mentions the blessing upon the Israel of God. It's a phrase that, of course, sparks much debate. But I would argue that this is and must be referring to the church. All true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already said that it is those who believe in Jesus who are the true offspring of Israel. I think if he were now to suddenly resurrect and reintroduce a distinction here, Uh, That would confuse and even undermine the argument of his letter. So Paul pronounces a blessing of peace and mercy upon those in Galatia who will agree with his letter and and go with this and, and, and walk by this rule, as he says, and the church, Christians everywhere. And then again, down in verse 18, where we find a very short benediction, but a benediction nonetheless, where he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. He blesses the saints at the close of the letter. And this might seem like a formality to some, or empty maybe even, but it's not to Paul, and it's not empty to any believer who gives these things consideration. What else do we desire, what else do we need and hope for and want than peace and mercy to be upon us? For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with us all of our days. True Christianity understands the treasure that these blessings are and says with Paul, amen to these things. May it be that these things would be true. Again, true Christianity seeks not worldly treasure, but heavenly treasure, spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And finally, True Christianity will not compromise the gospel to avoid suffering. This is just the flip side of what we said earlier. Verse 17, I think, is is a remarkable verse. After all of this, as we get near the end, Paul writes, From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Paul's steadfastness by God's grace in the truth of the gospel resulted in an extraordinary amount of physical suffering, persecution. And he calls his scars here the marks of Jesus. He's not ashamed of these things. They're the marks of Jesus. The world cannot get any longer at Jesus because he is raised and ascended and at the Father's right hand. But they will attack his people Paul knows these marks are there because of the gospel that he has been commissioned to preach. 
The arrogance of these false teachers who were accusing Paul. We've talked about this in Galatians. They accused Paul of soft-pedaling the gospel because he won't demand circumcision in order to be justified. Right? The, the reason he's left this out from you is because that's a tough message to go into a Gentile place and start telling you. And so because he's afraid and he, he doesn't want to suffer from you or anything, that's really why, what, what's motivating Paul. But Paul knows better. In the end, it is the other way around. These Judaizers from Jerusalem, they are going to suffer the wrath of the Jews if they preach the gospel that Paul preaches, just as he suffered. Paul knows this. He understands this. If he were still wanting the favor of the world, would I be a preacher of the gospel? Back in chapter 1, he makes that point. So Paul says here, enough, enough of all this. The evidence of his willingness to suffer for Christ's sake was all over his body. Would have been evident to anybody, to everybody. This is a, a sober and wonderful statement. That he's made his case from Scripture all throughout Galatians for why his gospel is true and why it is that it, because it's biblical and it's the true gospel, that's why he must proclaim it. Oh, and P.S., I have suffered greatly for this. Of course, we know that true Christians have at times denied the Lord in order to avoid suffering of persecution. And it is not the unforgivable sin. But when such things occur, true repentance will follow. We think of Peter himself, who compromised on multiple occasions, but it was followed by repentance. And this repentance is necessary precisely because true Christianity will not compromise the gospel to avoid suffering. So there's going to be a recognition that that was wrong to do. Again, this is the opposite of so many false gospels and false versions of Christianity that are out there that will gladly change with the shifting winds of culture in order to get by without suffering too badly. We are reminded of the burden of this wonderful letter, that there is one gospel, and it is ultimately God's gospel. It is his message of grace to the world. And as those who believe it, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, place your hope in what he has done at the cross. As those who believe it, we are the recipients of God's grace, and we are merely stewards, then, of this gospel message. And as Paul has made clear, and even as we read from 2 Corinthians 2, it is not on us to change it or to shift it, but to hold fast and to preserve it, and to hold it in faith as our own hope and hold it forth to others as the hope of the world. And so let us do just that, seek to hold fast, come what may, trusting our God to give us strength to withstand. Again, as we think about suffering, think about Peter, the night Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he was very, very confident, was he not, that he would not deny. Oh, others might, these guys might, but I will not. And yet he did. And yet he too found repentance. And as we think about 
the future and there's many unknowns and what if this or what if that. It is right for us to have a fear of God in that and to, to pray to him regularly for strength and grace to stand and to not take Peter's overconfident attitude in our own strength to stand. Our Lord is worthy. He endured the cross for us. And so let us not despise its shame, but gladly embrace it and bear any reproach that's necessary. For in the cross of Christ, in the good news of Jesus Christ, God has graciously embraced us as his children. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we again confess our sinfulness to you. And we praise you for this good news. We know that apart from you, by your Spirit, revealing the truthfulness of this gospel to us, apart from your Spirit regenerating us that we might believe it gladly and happily, we would continue to be lost in our transgressions and sins under your just judgment. And so we praise you for all you have done for our souls. Father, we pray that you would give us discernment in these days and as many days as you give us. Father, forgive us where we have felt the pangs of shame, at the thought of suffering, at the thought of the mockery of the world. Father, I pray that we would live soberly, live dependent upon your grace and strength, but trusting and confident that by your grace we will stand, not because we are so excellent and so strong in and of ourselves, but because you are faithful. This is our hopefulness. This is our hope as we look out. Father, we pray for mercy upon our world. Forgive us where we have been silent to not hold forth the cross of Christ. Help us to be zealous to see souls believe, to see Christ be glorified through people believing. Father, make us willing to receive the reproach of those who despise the cross. Father, we pray that you would cause many to turn to you, that many would see the emptiness of the world, the lies that the world projects, the arrogance of so many who are considered to be elites and so knowledgeable. that you would cause people to feel their hopelessness, that there would be a, no longer a suppressing of the truth and unrighteousness, but a happy embrace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we know that this requires your Spirit's work. Make us people who would be constant in prayer and fervent to hold forth Christ to the lost and dying world. Father, we are very aware of our weakness and our neediness for your help in all of these things, and so we call out to you for your help and for your mercy, that your peace and mercy would indeed be upon us. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the good news of your grace in and through Christ Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
this time, I invite you to take your hymnal 